It has also been a blessing for me to have them in uh, because I got to spend time with my dear friend, Matt Taylor. Uh, and you've already met them, but uh, Matt and I go way back. Uh, I was just thinking a little bit. Um, I think we were in the same freshman orientation group, and you probably don't remember. I was a little bit of a wallflower. And Matt came, and he was confident as all get out, and I was scared, you know. I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. He, you know, he was cool as a cucumber. Um, I was like, who's that? He's got a loud laugh, though. You know? <laughs> he likes to laugh. laugh. Right, I know, man. Um, no, you know, Matt, Matt and I, we went through college all four years together, uh, dearest of friends, uh, and then we ended up going to seminary together uh, all those years. Um, he has been a constant uh, friend and companion to me. Um, you know, the memories, uh, they go deep, and I'm just so thankful for <laughs> now. Uh, we are also friends in ministry. Uh, he has been youth pastor at Nashville for seven years? Yep. Seven years. So, Matt, would you come share the word with us? Thank you so much for coming. I called Andrew back in the, uh, in the fall and asked him if it'd be possible for us to think about bringing the youth choir to Asheville during Christmas time. And uh, he agreed. And, uh, and then about a month ago, he called me and he's like, hey, since you guys are doing the worship, would you mind, would you mind preaching that day? And I thought, absolutely, why not? Uh, I'm the youth pastor, and they don't always let the youth pastor preach, you know? So anytime I can get a pulpit, I'm like, let's do this, you know? They don't trust me. So if I mess up today, if it's awful, I'm just the youth pastor, all right? <laughs> if it's great, it's because Andrew gave me his notes, and I'm preaching from Andrew's notes. No. Um, I know Andrew's been, uh, been in the... Pro let me say this first. Andrew and Rebecca are some of our dearest friends, and um, you have a pastor who doesn't just care... Um, about the temporal light things of, of ministry and church. You have a pastor that's able to hold in one hand what the church is to be and hold in the other hand what, what the Bible says and how it relates to today. And he has a rare gift of being able to marry those things together. So you are blessed, and uh, you've got a, you've got a good, good pastor and, a, and an awesome first lady, I'll call you today. How's that sound? Does that sound official? Uh, my connections to North Carolina go way back. Uh, my dad was pastor at Elon Powerline in uh, Elon Burlington area for 16 or 17 years. And so I grew up on the North Carolina district coming to camp out this way. Uh, Sam Jones, one of our adult leaders, where's Sam? There he is. Sam grew up on North Carolina district and uh, grew up at, at camp. My dad, some of his favorite memories to this day are of Camp Lurecrest, just not too far from here. And uh, our, one of our interns from National First Church, Patrick Sada, he grew up in the Arden Church just down the road here. Uh, so we've got a lot of ties to North Carolina Nazarenes. So uh, I guess we're, we're just big one, one big family. But uh, uh, this morning I'm going to be sharing out of Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 9. I know Pastor Andrew's been uh, in the prophets in Isaiah. And uh, Andrew really is an Old Testament scholar. And during our education together... So often, Andrew helped get me through some of the Old Testament text and some of the, the classes we were in together. But uh, I'm going to leave the Old Testament to Andrew because that is, he's the man, all right? But he said I couldn't get to Jesus quite yet, or at least the birth of Jesus quite yet, because Christmas Sunday's next Sunday and he wants that one, all right? <laughs> so we're going to live in the tension between the prophets and Jesus being born today, if that's all right, all right? Uh, but like I said, we'll be in Matthew 1 and and then we'll, we'll skip over to Matthew chapter 9 as well. 
My parents were incredible parents. I was blessed to be raised in a Christian household. Like I said, my dad was a Nazarene pastor. They did a really good job of, hopefully, I think they did a good job of raising us. Uh, you'll, you'll be able to judge that later by the end of the sermon, maybe. Um, but I had a fantastic childhood. And uh, one, uh, every year Christmas was special, and every year Santa came through in a big way uh, in delivering some presents that we had hoped for. And uh, one year, my senior year of high school, uh, my last Christmas at home, you know, thinking, we're going we're gonna to go out with a bang, right? Santa's going to deliver like Santa's never delivered before. This is my last one. I'm the baby of the family, right? Surely Santa's going to come through big. We came down the steps. We had a big tradition growing up that me and my sister always had to wait on the landing of the stairs while my parents went down and made sure everything was, was right and that Santa came. They had to brew a pot of coffee, and this anticipation just built and built and built up as kids. And even as we got older, they still made us wait. And uh, my sister was a junior in college home. She had to wait on the landing with me as a high school senior, <laughs> right? And uh, it took forever to brew that pot of coffee. And we're just waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, Dad gives us the green light. And we go downstairs. And we sit there. And there's, you know, these gifts are here at the tree. And we're all excited. And we start going around and, and opening gifts. And the whole time, I see these these like six big gifts off in the corner. And I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> yes. I know I'm going off to college in a few months and I'm thinking, that's probably a big screen TV maybe. You know, I'm thinking, that's, that's pretty good size. There's no telling what could be in these. This is going to be fantastic, right? So we're opening all the, the socks, you know, the underwear, the things you open on Christmas morning, you know, because... It's Christmas morning, and for some reason we still do that, you know, and, uh, you know, exchange some gifts between our family and, uh, you know, my mom, the stuff we bought for my mom and stuff we, what do you buy for dads? They're still so hard. And I'm getting ready to be a dad, and Charlie asked for a Christmas list this year, and I was like, I don't know. And then I'm like, I am that dad, you know? I don't know what I want for Christmas anyways. But we finally get to the very end, and there's just three or there's six presents in the back, three with my name on it, three with, with my sister Leslie's name on it. And we were like, oh, yeah. And they're like, before you open these last three, you have to open them together. All right? So each of them correspond. So we kind of knew we are probably getting the same thing. We're kind of excited about that. that okay, that's odd. What, is, what do we have in common? And so we start ripping into them. And y'all... It was luggage. <laughs> luggage. My last year with Santa. The only thing that could have made it worse if it was luggage filled up with socks, you know? <laughs> luggage. And I remember trying to be thankful thinking, luggage. What does an 18-year-old do with luggage? <laughs> it was tough. And it was no flat screen. It was no Xbox. It was not, nothing, nothing that I had hoped or dreamed for. Now, granted, my parents were right. Santa Claus 
and my parents had schemed together, and I think they had done the right thing. I ended up taking that luggage literally all over the world. I got to travel to South Korea and England with it. I got to travel to the United States. Uh, I got to tour the Southeast with Treveca as a student there, and that luggage went all over the place with me. So it ended up being a fantastic gift down the road. But as an 18-year-old in high school, it was a little brutal. The stories we tell and how we tell them influence how people react to the message at hand. The stories we tell and how we tell them influence the way in which people receive them and how they understand them. In Matthew chapter 1, right, the New Testament starts off in a very peculiar way. It starts off with a big line of genealogy. Two of our gospel writers, John and Mark, they say, and, and Luke say, we don't, we don't need to start there. That's an awkward starting point. No one's going to read our book if we start by listing off a hundred names of a lineage that goes back to King David. All right? So they jump right in. In fact, uh, John and Mark, they go straight into Jesus' ministry. And they begin to tell about Jesus' miracles and the things in which he's done. Luke, on the other hand, he kind of starts with, with the birthing narrative of Jesus. But he goes and tells about John the Baptist's birth. He tells... Uh, about some of the prophecies that were to, to, to come to light in the birth of Jesus. But then in chapter 2, pretty quickly, and he does get to the story of Jesus' birth and some of those things, which is fantastic. Man, I'm sorry, Des. I thought I was a better preacher, too. <laughs> Forgive me. Um, but that's, wh- that's, where, that's where Luke starts. But Matthew starts with the genealogy, all right? Very odd and peculiar. But Matthew knows his original audience, right? Matthew knows that every Jew that would hear the story of Jesus would immediately want to know, and their first question would have been, if this is really the Messiah, the Savior, we know from the Old Testament that this Jesus, this Messiah character, has to be born of the lineage of David. It's in the prophecies foretold. And so they would immediately be looking for that. So Matthew gives them what they're looking for. Immediately before he tells the story of Jesus and the miracles and all the great things that Jesus does and the life and the ministry, before he does that, he starts by telling those early listeners where Jesus came from. But as you read through Matthew chapter 1, you find something very interesting. As you read through this genealogy of Jesus, Matthew throws in some some weird connections. And so I'm going to run through these really quick. But Matthew mentions four women in Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy. Now, in in biblical times, the genealogy, um, the, the, the women's side was of no importance. And thank, thankfully, things have changed there, and, and our lineages are traced now through mother's side and father's side. But in biblical times, that wasn't important. That wasn't the way in which they viewed, and not the way they valued uh, and structured their values. But Matthew includes four women, which is odd. And those early Jewish hearers of, of this story would have thought, how odd that he mentions four women. And he doesn't just mention four women. He mentions 
four very interesting women. In, in chapter 3, he mentions Tamar. Now, if you've ever read the story of Tamar in Genesis, there are literally some verses I would not read from this platform this morning. It is an icky story in some places. Tamar tricks her father-in-law into doing some awful things. And then we get to another character. Oh, and, and Tamar, she was, she was a non-Jew. So not only was she a woman that didn't matter in the lineage, but she was a non-Jew. A non-Jew and a Jewish heritage didn't matter. And so, but then Matthew lists another woman named Rahab. You know this, the name Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute that God ended up using later in the Old Testament to save the Israelites. But a woman of ill profession. Again, another non-Jew. Why would Matthew list her in the genealogy of Jesus? Now, before Matthew is, is all bad and lists, lists just women who had fallen short of the glory of God, he does throw in Ruth, all right? We've got a whole book in our Old Testament dedicated to Ruth and her story, and it's a great example of, of what it meant to be a follower of Christ. But Ruth, reminds you, is also a non-Jew. So even though she, she had a great testimony, she still doesn't quite fit that narrative and quite doesn't hold the significance and purpose of being a Jew because she herself is a Gentile. And then, if you'll look in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, he can't even say her name. He says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And if you remember the story of Bathsheba, right? David has Bathsheba's husband killed while he's away at war and ends up marrying Bathsheba and having a son, Solomon. And Matthew tells us of all these connections. And we could go through and we could tell stories of most of these names. We have biblical record. We have uh, uh, other historical records of most of the names that you see in this genealogy. And likewise, they have varied stories of, of both sin and disparity, but also grace and new life. But as we look at these four women, I have to ask the question, why in the world would Matthew start the best story ever told to humanity by not only giving a boring genealogy, but why would he tell the best story ever by starting with the sinners and the outcast and the women who don't hold significance in society? And why would he remind us of David, who we want to hold on a pedestal, but yet we have to remember that David has this history about him. Why would he remind us of the story of Bathsheba, who fell short of the glory of God? Why would he start the best story ever in this manner? Here's why I think. The story of Jesus is the story of a Savior who didn't just come for sinners. 
He came from sinners. Now that's not an indictment on Jesus' character. Jesus is, is spotless. He's sinless. But Jesus didn't just come to save us. He came from a place of brokenness. His lineage was one that wasn't the cleanest or the prettiest or the most sinless lineage possible. Jesus came from broken, hurting people. But yet we still ask this question, why does Matthew start this way? Why does he start the story in this manner? I think it's because, here's one reason, the story of Matthew is going to tell us about light coming to overtake darkness. He paints a history that is dark, that is bleak, that is filled with sin. But yet we know there's a Savior that comes, that brings light and hope. So Matthew tells the story of these broken people, perhaps to tell his own story himself. Matthew was a broken person who was friends with broken people. If you look in Matthew chapter 9, you see a very peculiar series of events. You see that Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man. And the text is a little vague, and we're not sure just after that story in verse 9, Jesus calls Matthew to be one of his disciples. And it's very interesting the way in which Matthew, who's writing this story, who's telling this story as a whole, puts himself into the story. And so we, we see the way in which he positions himself. And we're not sure if Matthew actually saw Jesus paralyzing or healing the paralyzed man. But likely he did. And if not, he heard that story firsthand from someone who did. And coming off this healing of a broken, sick man, Matthew now inserts himself into the story of God. And he does so in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, by saying this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners. You notice that phrase, tax collectors and sinners? It's not just sinners. Tax collectors have a whole different category that they fall into. While Jesus, verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and Jesus' disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the, his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And Jesus references a verse from Hosea that says this, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then Jesus closes this, or Matthew closes this story with one of Jesus' one, famous one-liners, where Jesus says, For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew was a tax collector. And we've already seen that tax collectors have their own subset in history of being worse than sinners. 
They don't even fall in the sinning category. It's worse than a sinner. It's a tax collector and, a, and sinners. And, and Matthew fell into this, 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 this way of thinking because tax collectors were awful, okay? Jewish tax collectors were even more awful because they, they sold out their brothers and sisters in order to make themselves rich and in order to make the empire rich. It's one thing when a Gentile would do that. It's another thing when somebody of your own culture and heritage sells you out to make a few bucks. And in biblical times, they had taxes on everything. They had, and anytime the, the government needed more money, they created another tax. I know none of you know anything about that, right? You've never experienced that in your life. There's nothing like that in Asheville, I'm sure. But if the government needed more tax, they'd be like, and now we have a gate tax. Anytime you walk through this tax, uh, you're going to be charged a uh, nickel or shekel or whatever they had. All right? It's kind of like a toll booth. Yeah? You ever been through one of those? Annoying. Right? And then they needed a few more bucks in the government, so what do they create? Oh, a key tax. You want to have a key made? No problem. It's going to be an extra buck, though. Old Uncle Sam. He gets it. Needed more money? No problem. We're going to have a hay tax now. Your animals need hay? No problem. Just every time you buy a bale of hay, now you pay us a certain amount of money. And it was Matthew's job to go around and collect that money. It was Matthew's job to go around and find the resources in order to not only make himself rich, who he got a cut of the money, but then would give the money, the rest of the money to the government. So there's this whole other way of seeing them. And he was an outcast of an outcast of his Jewish people. He was an outsider. But yet, Jesus calls him to be one of his disciples. If I'm Peter, and we're walking around, and I'm watching Jesus doing miracles, and then all of a sudden, he calls a guy like Matthew to be one of his disciples... Jesus, what are you doing? He's the worst of the worst. Jesus, stop it. <laughs> we can't be seen with him. And then what, so what does Jesus do? He goes even further. He goes to Matthew's house. He goes into the worst of the worst house. And what does he do with him? He sits at his table. And who else is at the table? Matthew's friends. The worst of the worst sinners and Matthew's friends are sitting at the table with Jesus and his disciples. You see, the story of Jesus to the gospel writer Matthew was the story of a Savior who didn't merely come to save those who were already righteous, to save those who had their act together, to save those who fit the cultural norms, to save those who had already found new life. Yes, he came for them. But for Matthew, Jesus came for the sinners. Jesus came for the broken. Jesus came for the worst 
of the worst. I know it's Christmas and we're supposed to have good news, right? We lit candles of hope and love and joy today. But I think that's the best news of all. That Jesus came for people like me and you. That regardless of our past, whether that be through uh, generations who fell short of the glory of God, or whether that be through our own past where we fell short of the glory of God and sold out our friends for a few bucks. Whatever the case is, Christ came for us. For I have not come to call the righteous but sinners, Jesus says. Can you imagine being Matthew and hearing that? Here you are a sinner. And Jesus calls you a sinner. Matthew knew he was a sinner. Matthew knew he had fallen short of the glory of God. He didn't need anybody to tell him. Most of the time, when somebody encounters the love of Christ, all the time, when someone encounters the love of Christ, they don't have to be told that they're a sinner. They know it. And how different would our world be instead of us pointing out that people are sinners, we instead showed them the love of Christ. And maybe that's what this Christmas, this Christmas thing is all about. Maybe this Christmas we need to remember that Christmas isn't necessarily for us. And if you've been in the church a while like I have my whole life, and if you're healthy, your relationship with Christ is healthy, and you've been saved, and you're pursuing holiness, maybe this Christmas isn't about us, the healthy. Maybe it's about the lost and the hurting and the broken. We've got a week left before we celebrate the birth of Jesus. I can't help but wonder how many people we know that need to encounter this Jesus who hangs out with the hurting and broken and lost. And doesn't just hang out with the hurting and broken and lost, but welcomes them and shows them love. That's why we light the candle of love, to remind us that we serve a God of love. And we serve a God who forgives and makes us new. We've got a week left in this Christmas season. Maybe, maybe two weeks if you count some, some of the week after. To tell the world the story of Jesus. I want to be like Matthew. Who tells the story of not only hope for the world, but redemption of the world. Will you pray with me this morning? Father God, we're thankful for the story that you've given us through the gospel of Matthew. That, Father, you have shown us through your life and through your testimony 
that you are a God for all. That you are a God who cares for all, both the healthy and the sick. And Father God, will you use us this week to be vessels of your light, to point people to not just a beautiful story of a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger, but will you give us opportunities this week to show your love in a way that doesn't judge others, but shows others who you are and allows your Holy Spirit to work in a new and magnificent way in their life that brings light and life like we could have never imagined. We thank you for your servant Matthew, and we thank you for the way in which he shapes this story to show us the kind of God you are. We love you this morning. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, that stepped into our brokenness, stepped into our pain, and rescued us, and freed us, and gave us new life. So we pray as we enter into these final weeks of the Christmas season uh, that we would prepare our hearts and our lives for your coming into this world, and that we would prepare by showing others your love by showing others your grace and your transformation in our lives. Would you bring someone into our uh, life this week, maybe into our path, that we could show your love to? Uh, could we make this Christmas season about your transforming love and what it can do to our city, to our homes, and to our world, Lord? And so we, may we be agents of Jesus of Nazareth who dines and eats with sinners and tax collectors. And may we be sent as Jesus sends us forth, Lord. Well, we thank you uh, for these fine young men and women that have shared so powerfully in their ministry with us. We pray that you would bless them, uh, guide their steps, and may they know your love and your peace uh, for the remainder of this season in their lives. Watch out for them, we ask, Lord. We're thankful uh, for Nashville First Church. Would you bless their ministry in Nashville uh, for their grace and their uh, support of love in this ministry? We give you thanks. Be with those who are hurting today. We, we remember Richard Banks as he's recovering from open heart surgery, Lord. Would you bring strength back to his body? Would you bring healing into his body and uh, bring him to a full recovery, we ask. Uh, be with uh, Bob's parents, Harold and Ruby, who are struggling this morning. We pray that your grace would be upon them. And others, uh, family members and friends that may just be having a difficult time or, or family divisions as we come in, into the Christmas time, uh, we pray that your spirit of peace uh, would rest in all of these situations, that we would be still and know that you are God and that you are in control, Lord. We love you so much. Thank you for never leaving us nor forsaking us. Help us to pray as you taught, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Church family, would you stand with me?
Once again, thank you so much for sharing your ministry with us. It was such a blessing. We pray safe travels uh, as you go home this afternoon, and uh, just pray you have a blessed season. Uh, thank you, Pastor Matt, for bringing the word to us and uh, receive this benediction. May you be the people of God's love in Jesus Christ. May people experience it through you this week. And may someone say there's something about this person. There's something different about this season. And I feel the love of Christ.